My name is uh, Brian Kuntz. I'm one of the elders here at Florence Christian Church, and I have the, the privilege to share this morning. Uh, Pastor Aaron is out of town. He is in Colorado, uh, hopefully enjoying himself with his family, and I believe celebrating uh, his mother's birthday. I'm, I'm not totally positive on that. I think that uh, he texted me this morning wishing me well and let me know he was praying for me because I need it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, he said he was having a good time, so glad for that with him. We're going to be continuing this week in Luke, uh, a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. We've been in Luke for some time now, working our way through it. We're going to be in chapter 20 this morning starting in verse 27 and going through the end of the chapter and the first four verses of chapter 21, just so you know where we're going. How we're going to proceed this morning, we'll be reading a section of uh, this passage, some of the uh, verses, and then we'll go back and kind of talk about those verses, break it down, hopefully make some applications, then we'll move on to that next section. And one of the tools I want to use this morning may be familiar to many of you. It, it, it may not be, but in small groups here at uh, FCC, we use this tool where we take the passage of Scripture uh, for the week, this week being found in Luke 20, as I said, and we come together on a night of the week or a day, a time through the week in a small group, and we read through that passage, and we restate that passage, and then we ask some questions of each other about that passage of Scripture. Questions like, what does this passage say about God? What does this passage say about people? And then, uh, importantly, towards the end, we'll say, what are we going to do about that? We might generate like an I will statement as a result of what we just read in Scripture and how the Holy Spirit led us and convicted us and hopefully is changing us to be more like Jesus. So we will do a little bit of that this morning as we go through this passage. Uh, I want to start out just by praying, if you could, if you would agree with me, and then we will dive into this passage. Father, thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit, and your faithfulness to us, Lord. Um, we ask that you would teach us and lead us, and that you would be glorified and have your will here this morning, Father. Thank you. Amen. We're going to be uh, just starting with uh, Luke 20, verse 27 to 33 is the first little portion of Scripture that I want to read, and then we'll talk about that. So I'm going to read that. It says, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Obviously, when I read that, I think, well, I'm not sure if she's going to be in heaven. Was she seven homicides there? I don't know. Uh, I, but... 
by the fourth husband, if I'm the fourth, I'm sleeping with one eye open. That's for sure. Uh, but in seriousness about it, um, a little pre... That first verse 27 talks about the Sadducees, and it's an, it's an important thing to note about the Sadducees um, that it says those who deny the resurrection. They did not, as a group, as a sect, they did not believe in the resurrection. They had several beliefs, but that being key to this. And so if we were to uh, know that about the Sadducees, which we do know, and it states right here, we know that they're not really asking an upfront question of Jesus about marriage to get an answer. They're trying to kind of endorse or advance their preconceived ideas, their agenda. They're not asking about marriage. They're asking to prove a point that they already have. And I, when I read that, I think about what we talked about, those tools that we use in small groups. And one of those questions that we ask is, what does this say about people? And I think it's important when we look at this passage and when the Sadducees are the example, we think, what does this say about people? And my initial tendency is, what does it say about those people? And that's not right. It's what does this say about me? Where do I see myself? And I see myself in this. Um, it sounds very, very familiar. I don't know how many times I have done the same thing where I have approached God in this manner or went and asked a question or prayed um, not open to the truth or what he's saying or what he's doing or what he might want to do or teach me or change me or shape me. Uh, and so I, I think of that and I think, okay, so if I want to generate a what am I going to do about that fact, that other tool that we use in the small groups, how should I approach God? Do I really want an answer from God, or do I just want to justify my desires or my agenda? Um, so I have to approach him uh, with reverence and knowing who I'm approaching, that this is God, creator, um, sovereign Lord of my life, uh, not a genie in a bottle, so to speak, to oversimplify it. And I know that the Sadducees did not, at this time and in this place, recognize Jesus as the Christ, but that does not make him any less God because they didn't see it or acknowledge it. And they approached him in this manner as if to trap or to instruct him. Uh, and so I want to learn from that because I see what that says about me. Uh, and you're a lot like me. And then I see uh, what I want to change and how I want to be different than them. And it generates an I will statement, if you will, out of that, that something to the, to the tune of, I think I would do well when it comes to God's word to debate him less and to obey him more. That would be a simple I will statement out of that that would change my life. Going on in verse 34 through 40, Jesus answers both of their questions, their kind of surface-level question about marriage and then their deeper question about the resurrection. So let's read those verses 34 through 40. It says this, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Key point right here. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask, to ask him any questions. So Jesus answers their questions here first, um, concerning marriage first. And this could be a, a hard, I guess for lack of a better term, a hard teaching of Jesus. And maybe in your marriage, this wouldn't be such a hard teaching, and you would be like, wow, I'm glad I'm not going to be married in eternity. I don't know. For me, this is a, this is a hard teaching because uh, my wife, I love my wife, one of the most intimate uh, relationships that I have um, here on earth is, is there. And then I, I read this passage, and it's, it's hard for me to, to hear Jesus say that about marriage, that we will, um, those that attain to that, to the resurrection, will not be given and won't, marriage won't be like I think of it when I think of marriage. And I'm like, wait a minute, I don't like that. Um, you know, that's, no, I don't, I don't want that. And so I might go to God with this, just like the Sadducees, with this preconceived agenda of what I want rather than going to him in his sovereignty and trusting him. This can be applied to not just our marriage relationships. Um, you know, relationships are valuable. So like if I'm not married to Kathleen in, or my wife or my husband in eternity, what about all these other relationships? Am I going to even know them? And uh, maybe you, why I struggle with this, and I, this is not unique to me. Many of you have similar uh, history in your life. Uh, and some of you know mine, and some of you don't. You know what? Kathleen and I have a daughter who, uh, just before her sixth birthday, was killed by a drunk driver. So <clears throat> I have, uh, you know, a vested interest in that relationship being interrupted for that to be made right and for me to, uh, how you could interpret this or where you could go with this, that like, well, I'm not even going to recognize her when I get to heaven. And I don't think that's true and I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here at all. So I want to look this, this hard teaching that Jesus lays down here uh, I want to put that in the light of Scripture and in the light of God's sovereignty um, so that we can, uh, we can be assured and can know. And so the answer to that hard teaching, let's look at a couple of Scriptures about heaven and about what that will be like. Uh, the first one is in Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 through 4. I want to read that. And it says this, And I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that paints a pretty clear picture of heaven and in contrast to this life and to this world and things being right in God's sovereignty and in his economy, if you will. And then I think I try and view that through my reality and what I know and my history and my finite mind. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul talks about this very thing in talking about eternity and God and um, this life versus eternity. And it says this, it says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Heaven will be more with a capital M. Everything that is good and worthy will be enhanced, not diminished. Uh, we can and must trust God with our eternity, with our relationships, with our marriages, with our kids, with, uh, with our whole life. And it, and it becomes very clear, especially in that passage in Corinthians there, that in heaven we will know deeper we will be known deeper. We will love more, and we will be loved more. Uh, nothing will be lacking in heaven. The weight, the value of relationships here, the weight of interrupted or broken relationships here, that weight will be weightless in eternity. completely satisfied and, com and fulfilled by God's provision. And I get choked up over that because it's so dear to me and it's not a hope, it's an assurance that's in me. It's more than a hope with things. And that's the beautiful thing about scripture and the value of it, that it gives us that, that God has provided that for us uh, when we look into his scripture and when we see what it has to say and what it wants to show us. Continuing on, just briefly, in verse 36 there, uh, we're talking about angels and equal to the angels. And verse 36 does not, if you look at it closely and look elsewhere in Scripture, it does not, as some claim and teach, that we will be angels in eternity. Um, rather, uh, it states that we will be like them in regards to the question of marriage. So just a point of clarity there. You may have heard that before. Um, and then in verse 37, Jesus answers the true question that this whole thing, this whole discussion started with, with the Sadducees, and that is in regards to the resurrection. And he says, but the dead are raised kind of a point-blank answer to their question. And then he goes on to explain how we know this. 
And again, he does that showing the importance of careful examination of Scripture and study of Scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy, talking about Moses, who nearly uh, 500 years after the death of Abraham declared he is, not he was. So catch that in the careful study of that. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is present tense due to the fact that they are alive and that the resurrection is true. This illustrates and paints clearly that need for the study of Scripture. No doubt the Sadducees studied Scripture. No doubt they had read this passage before. Um, in fact, Jesus used the Pentateuch or quoted from Deuteronomy, these first five books of, of our Bible, because that is the only part of Scripture that this group recognized to hold any authority. Um, so they, they had read this before. It, this wasn't the first time they had heard that. Yet, in hearing it, this, the distinction of is alive versus was alive became critical, and it silenced them was the result of that. It answered their question and silenced them. And so we see that that need to look into Scripture and to read it and to read it carefully and to uh, invest in it and let it change our lives. Then we see Jesus in his classic fashion and model when interacting with people who confront him, usually the religious leaders it was uh, in the New Testament. We see them thinking they've came up with this great question that they're going to stoop him in and trap him in and back him into a corner. And they ask him the question, and then he answers their question plainly, and then he tends to go on the offense with them and flips the tables, so to speak. And that's what we see starting in verse 41. Verses 41 through 44, Jesus goes on the offense, and he says this, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and then he quotes from Psalms 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And this passage, these verses here, we don't use, I don't, maybe, maybe you do, the word Lord a lot in my conversations with people outside of a biblical reference. Like, I don't, I don't know any lords in the sense of like they are actually bestowed that title or that sort of thing. We don't really have that in our, in our culture to the extent that they would have had there. And another thing that we didn't, that is a little different about today, too, is in their society, the idea of me or King David in this case calling a descendant Lord, which was this title of um, with weight and prestige, and in this case, deity even, that would have been another thing that was un unheard of. It went the other way. It didn't go 
Um, you didn't call your kids or your grandkids in those places with, with honor like that. That wouldn't have been something they did. But Jesus, knowing and in fact being in the actual lineage of King David as a son on down the line, um, knowing that that is a fact, and then David in Psalms 110 referring to his descendant as Lord, ascribing deity uh, to his descendant, we see that Jesus is that person. And he proves that, that he is. We all know physically he is descended from David in the lineage, but we see him in his deity established not only through multiple ways, but through the miracles that he did, through the prophecies that he fulfilled, but ironically, in this conversation about the resurrection, one of the chief ways that we see him establish himself as God the Son is he is raised from the dead. Resurrection, what started this conversation, ends the conversation, so to speak, and proves Jesus is God the Son with things. Um, so it, it was just ironic that you see that. Um, and then you hear people today sometimes claim that Jesus was a good teacher or a great guy, um, just one of many great prophets or something like that. And then you think, you have to pause and think to yourself, wow, I wonder if they have read Scripture or how they get there if you read Scripture where you have this guy, Jesus, making claims to be God and then fulfilling those prophecies, doing these miracles, rising from the dead and being resurrected, how could he be merely a good guy? He's either a liar for the claims that he made, or he is God with things. So it dispels that myth of him being just another great teacher or um, you know, a really, really nice guy. That's not who Jesus is. He is God the Son. He then goes into, Jesus does uh, kind of an, another little section here, a, a comparison and contrast almost uh, between some different players in this story, the scribes uh, who are there and then a widow in the first few verses of chapter 41. And we have two different sides of the coin. The first side of the coin being the scribes and he talks about them here. We're going to read that. And then he gives us some warnings using them as an example, um, which are good ways for us to uh, look at this passage and say, what does this say about people? And what am I going to, what's it say about me? And what am I going to do as a result of that? So let's read verses 45 through 47. It says, And in hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So this is one side of the coin before we hear about the widow, the other side of the coin. Um, and Jesus gives us 
three fairly distinct warnings where he uses uh, the scribes as a negative example. First off, in verse 46, he, it's easy to see the warning against pride. And I think, okay, what does this say about me? That I might be given to pride also. That you might be given to pride. Uh, there are 153 verses in the Bible about pride. And there are three times that the Bible states unequivocally that God opposes the proud. So if we are reading this and wondering what does this say about God, one of those questions that we asked in our small groups, um, it's pretty clear what he says about what this says about God and his relationship to the pride of man. He opposes it. <laughs> he is against it. He's contrary to it. Uh, and so that makes me think, generate a pretty I will statement. I will guard against pride in my life because what does that say about me? I'm given to pride. And what does it say about God? He opposes the proud. So I need to guard against that and try and be humble. Uh, secondly, in verse 47, he, Jesus gives a warning about uh, how it is that we relate to widows. And I want to look at James 1.27. Some of you may have heard this, but it, it's pretty clear about widows and orphans. It adds in there about how we are to relate. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it gives a clear picture of what this says about God with regards to widows and orphans, and it gives a clear path for how I should act and how I should react as a result of that. And then uh, there's a final warning that comes in here of the three that uh, Jesus uses the scribes in a negative uh, example, and this warning concerns prayer, and it's in that mid part of verse 47, and he warns against how they pray and for what their motives for praying are. And then if we look in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 6 in reading, Jesus gives us fairly clear, uh, easy to understand instructions about how we are to pray and how we are to look different than the scribes looked and to act different than the scribes act. Uh, and it says this in Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then he goes on in the next few verses to give us an outline uh, or forum for a way to pray in the Lord's Prayer, which may be familiar to some of you. Um, so he gives us a pretty clear view of what does this say about God with regards to, to prayer, uh, <clears throat> that he wants it to be genuine, that he values genuine prayer. He doesn't 
value prayer just for the sake of prayer or prayer for show of others around you, um, that he doesn't value that. And so it's easy to derive from that, like what does this say about people? Well, it says that we might be given to just praying for show or, <laughs> or for those around us. And then to generate an I will statement, like what am I going to do to change in that? Like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Scripture and I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to look to that and I'm going to examine my heart as I pray and I'm going to be genuine before the Lord and laid bare before him and say, God, how, how, do, you, how do you want me to pray? And I'm not going to do it <clears throat> in a way to look good, but I'm also not going to be afraid to pray and think that someone might think less of me because I pray. That kind of goes both ways. Like you could be afraid to pray in public or choose not to because you don't want to be a put on a show, but you could also not pray in front of people because you're afraid of what they might think about of you. So that can go both ways as an application there. Um, but those warnings we would do well to heed. And then at the end of verse 47, just to kind of an observation there, Jesus talks of degrees of punishment that the scribes, and he does it in saying that they will receive greater condemnation. And also, of note, the Bible teaches us that there will be degrees of reward for Christ's followers. So you might want to look into that a little more and just uh, and know more about that. That's easy to do with a concordance. Um, then we go into Luke chapter 21. We're going to just read the first four verses of that. And it's, this is nearly the opposite of the scribes. Uh, we have this, this widow. In their society and in culture, it would have been, uh, she would have been on the opposite end of things. Um, and she was on the opposite end in her heart also of this place of great pride that the scribes were in and show and pretense versus uh, this widow and where she comes from. I want to read those, those verses. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. I think about, um, might have the worship team kind of start to make their way back up here to the stage, but I think about the things we've, we've talked about here and they're good and worthwhile and, and great um, and important to be instructed on Scripture, um, to carefully study God's Word, to guard against pride in my life and in your life, uh, to have a right relationship with God and man and a right view of those relationships. And I, and I think about it and I wonder, what is my motivation for these things and my motivation to do these things and to be this way? And I see two motivations here, if you really stop and think about it, two pictures of their motivations. 
to a lot of people, the scribes looked like they were doing the, the right things. And the widow probably looked like she was doing the wrong thing. For some reason, she was in poverty um, with things. So you have people probably second-guessing the motivations of both or uh, the purity of both. And I then have to examine my motivations for why I would do these things. Is it so that I will have this safe, quiet life that's blessed, you know, maybe in a nice but modest home and have physical health and a retirement, these sort of things? Does that play in to my thought pattern of why I do what I do and how I relate to God? It does. It has. Uh, and maybe I'm the only one, and that's, I have fairly broad shoulders. I'll bear that and, and admit that. That's okay. Um, but God's working on me on that, and he's changing me. And, uh, and I think I'm not the only one who struggles that, with that in life. Um, I'm not the only one uh, who struggles with the fact of my motives need to be to bring glory to God that I need to see the widow as the hero in this comparison and contrast. Um, and I need to give. I want to strive in my life to have my life poured out like Jesus did as an example. And as we see the widow giving here, giving not just my money, and I'm not, I'm not just talking about money giving when I say giving, but rather spending my life in a way that I give all that I have to live on. And that that's enough. And that's my motivation to bring glory to God to do that. It's not to look a certain way or to have certain status or um, rapport with man, but rather to bring glory to God and to be used by Him. To be His instrument. So, thinking about that chiefly, but also thinking about the I will statements that we kind of generated today as we go out of here because we want to read God's word and then we want it to change us. We don't want to look in the mirror and then walk away and forget what we just saw in the mirror. Um, so some of those that, that you might make today um, would be I'm going to debate God's word less and I'm going to obey him more. I'm going to trust God's sovereignty. I'm going to study his word carefully. I'm going to give of myself, not with quantity, but with cost. And I'm going to do those, not in a prideful manner. I'm going to do those things. I'm going to strive even for those things, not in a prideful manner, but in a manner that brings glory to God and out of love for him and surrender to him and his sovereignty. So... We're going to move, guys, into uh, another, another song here and a time of communion during that song. You have the elements there. The 